G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. So we are going um, St. George, Ulo, uh, Quilpie for three days, um, Aramanga and uh, Thargaminda. Um, so we'll get within about just under 300 kilometres of South Australian border and probably no closer than 100 kilometres to the New South Wales border at any one time. We were going to drop in a lightning ridge. That's all, you know, that's not going to happen. So so we'll go out that way um, and enjoy the... We've been out there before. We, we Last time we came, we went north and then dropped down. So we did the development road of Windora. But as, you know... Amazingly enough, we got flooded out in the desert country, so we couldn't get to, we couldn't stay. We had to miss Windora because we stuck, we're stuck a night in Longridge. That um, that Windora to Quilpie Road after the rain and the wildflowers have come up, it's pretty stunning. Yeah, that was the thing. You see, I was talking to the boys saying, "Oh, we're going to the desert; it's going to be all red." When we get past bloody Longridge, it's just green as green as can be. There's like 300 kilometres of green and water on the road. So. Yeah, I've just come back from out there and it's, it's it's very much that way. It's really nice. And uh, the locals are happy. The beef prices are up. The the volumes are up. The commodities yeah. are up. Everything's up and there's, it's a very buoyant place out there. Mate, I reckon, um, well, New South Wales is the same. You go touring New South Wales, there's more grain on the ground than there is you know, yeah. ground. Yeah, the, the rain here right across New South Wales, the grass is fantastic. Mm. Feed. It's just once we get through COVID, it, it, it bounces back very quick. And I've seen that with my, my retail customers. Uh, my North Coast guys have been open for four or five days and they run off their feet. Uh, so it does bounce back very quickly. But, you know, so much of the income from the bush as far as tourism comes from the cities yeah. and they can't get out there. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's the biggest issue. That really hurts them, you know. That's it. Well, we were there in April and we were going to go again, but we can't go because we went down last time. We went to Orange and all that stuff. Um, but there's we were like coming back from uh, Cowra one day along just just cross country from Cowra to to Parks. So and we went through this tiny little village where the actual road kind of goes around the main street now. But we actually said, oh. We dropped down in the main street, drove through the end of it. So there's like maybe a pub, maybe about 12 buildings in the main street. Got to the end of the main street and there's just a yard and I reckon it was once a petrol station. Mm. So it's concrete with a grass yard in the back, overgrown grass, yeah. And there was about $30 million worth of machinery sitting in that, <laughs> behind that petrol. Just all brand new, you know, reds, orange, yellows, just new machinery. That's where they must have just been dropping it. it was, there it is. So, one of my favourite parts of, the, of, our, of our conversation is, is Quag. I really like Quag. 
<laughs> Quag's been very inactive, and I don't know how he gets away with. Uh, I've been getting away with some of the stuff, but yeah, Quag hasn't come out for a little while. Quag is uh, alter ego. Quag's uh, ego. secondary Facebook profile when he gets when he gets shit. <laughs> yeah, went through a stage where I was getting banned every other week. So and I usually come on and say, "Where's Quag? I miss Quag." <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, so you can introduce you can introduce them both, Mark. They'll be fine. Sure, 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 sure. Um, and oh. got, got some news on this one. Is that so, so I did a uh, article on this in the current double SAA. It's out of frame. It's out of frame. There, there we go. And remember, I, I mentioned the fact that it's it, the guy who made it is James, but the initial is I on it. Well, some guy wrote into me from double SAA, one of the readers, and explained why I is J. And I went, well, thanks very much, mate. I never really, this guy I know who he's talking about too. It's all because uh, Jay was the um, – so on this particular gun, it's made by, a, by an, a name of a guy, James Barber, who made it probably in some time between 1725 and 1740, maybe as late as 1750, but more than likely 1740. So it was a – flintlock pistol because they were all flintlocks back then now the interesting thing is um on the uh stamps it says i b as in his last name's barber and his first name's james but it uses the letter i and i was a bit thrown by that and one of the readers from double s double a contacted me and said that j is the youngest letter in the English alphabet and that uh, it came in vogue with the printing of the King James Bible and before that I was often used. So um, that's why I is J. So how's that to confuse the hell out of you? You've done a number on me, mate. Yeah, confused it. And the interesting thing is last night I was shooting a Glock 17, so... I'm, I'm, I finally moved out of the 1800s. <laughs> Have you got power at home yet? Yeah, yeah the mouse, <laughs> man, he's running like a champ outside. <laughs> he's going crazy. Okay, so let's get into it. So uh, good evening, Craig. Great to have you here. Um, tonight with us guys is Craig Golding, who is a 32-year veteran of the uh, hunting, fishing, and outdoor industry. And uh, Craig has had a number of businesses. The most, uh, or most recently, I think it's Hook and Bone Trading. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's on Facebook, and it's a very nice hoodie, by the way. And before that, well, my first interaction with Craig when he was still running a store was at Field and Stream and Nara, where I bought some, what did I buy off you? I bought some Hunter's Element gear. So thanks for being with us, Craig. And really, for us tonight, we want to get your take on the uh, hunting and fishing scene, and especially since you also um, involved with Shooters Union in New South Wales, and even your family's involved with Shooters Union. I understand your daughter is one of the um, development officers for the Shooters Union as well. So over to you. Well, firstly, thanks for having me, guys. It was um, I did a bit of background work and watched a couple of the Hunters Campfire podcasts during the week, and I, I just found the whole concept really refreshing. 
um, you know, the push towards public land hunting, how-tos, and just making it simple for the newbies getting into the sport. Uh, I think it's been well overdue, and I think congratulations to you for that. Okay. Um, Thanks, look, I, I was 12 when I got into hunting, and that was with my dad. Um, and back then it was mainly rabbits, but I'd been fishing from a very, very early age. You know, I'm talking two and a half, three-year-old, I was fishing with dad, mum, and my uncles. So, yeah, look, it was probably always, and, and dad was very keen pig hunter back in the day, you know, and and I guess that's what kicked it off, all dad's stories about pig hunting with his mates. Um, and little Burke or North Burke or Louth of those areas, which was, you know, the pig hunting mecca back then, you know. Uh, so I started hunting when I was 12, shooting my first rabbits. That was down around Gundagai in southern New South Wales. Um, my maternal grandfather hunted, as did my maternal uncle as well. So, you know, classic case of having someone in the family introduce you to, the, to that mm. sport, that recreation. Um, but yeah, it was very much only uh, rabbits and foxes back then. And deer are only just making a sort of uh, an impact. And you'd see stories in outdoors, the old outdoors magazine about fallow deer particularly. Um, but when I got my first car, which oh, bloody hell, I couldn't even tell you when that was. That would that would have been a Galant station wagon, but um, certainly moved further afield and goats become on the menu, you know. Um, pigs were always, I never really went out particularly to chase pigs. I always went out to get chase goats. I loved hunting goats. You know, I've got a pile of bloody goat horns down there and it just, I enjoy hunting goats, you know. Um but then I was 23 when I got involved in the firearms industry. I was the, I became the um, Victorian sales rep for Full of Firearms. So 23 years old, and that just changed my world. You know, sales rep in Victoria, and I think the first month I was there, I was invited out salmon deer hunting, and that was it. That was it. Um, if I've got a favourite animal to hunt, it's salmon deer. I mean, it's just um, and. Yeah, that was the start of it. That was in 89. And um, from then, it just sort of grew from there. And the deer hunting bug bit fairly hard. And uh, fellow deer, red deer, I've hunted a lot of red deer in, you know, in Queensland, particularly New Zealand. Um, so I guess deer hunting is is what I love to do. Um, but, yeah, you know, summer's coming on. So, you know, it'll be every sort of couple of days I'll be up chasing rabbits as well. So it's just it's a very... Because I've been lucky enough to get involved in the industry, I've met a very, very wide cross-section of people interested in a wide cross-section of hunting. Uh, for part of that time, and I think I was with Full of Firearms for about nine years, certainly up until 97 when we got retrenched after um, the buyback and all that. But um, I was involved in clay target shooting for a while, uh, sponsored shooter for Fullers for a little bit of a time, double um, A grade shooter, shot in the Nationals, uh, that was alongside Michael Diamond, and you just couldn't hold a candle to Michael, you know. I can I can claim that fame myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, being was, by Michael Diamond. Yeah. Being smashed by Andy Vella and Michael Diamond at the Nationals yeah. in Newcastle. Yeah, I graded up to double A over about a year and a half of, of picking up my first shotgun and just took to it um, yeah. Yeah. instinctively and really enjoyed it. But, yeah, I... Um, <laughs> Those guys are cool cucumbers, man. When they oh, walk up to a, to assess a, a field, they they oh, you know, yeah. it's, it's quite an achievement to get to A grade, double A grade, but then they're another league, um, yeah. and you're right, they're just cool as a cucumber, you know. 
but it's funny now because when I when I got retrenched in '97 from the firearms industry, uh, I didn't pick up a clay target gun again and haven't since. You know, because just just my sheer love of hunting. If I've got time to dedicate to it, I'll go hunting. You know, I fish to relax, but hunting's just that's the passion. You know. Um. So. So I've been introduced to Sam deer, shot my first fallow around the same time, and of course more goats and pigs, and pigs became a big thing. That was all that was well before state forest hunting as well, or as we know it now, state forest hunting. We, you could still get into state forests down here then, if you knew one of the head foresters, and we would, the guy we knew ran the Bombala State Forest office mm-hmm. down southeast forests in New South Wales, so we'd rock through there about three o'clock in the morning grab our permits that were sticky taped to the front door and go and hunt in now what is uh, the Bondo State Forest, I think it oh, is. Oh, yeah. Bondo. Um, yeah. And back then it was alive with red deer, uh, a lot of red deer there. Samba hadn't really made an impact at that stage, but a lot of red deer. Um, a few hunting clubs got onto that early on and they were pretty much decimated, but it was a good – while it lasted, it was very, very good hunting. Um was that Bondi, you said, or Bondo? Well, Bondo, actually. So Bondo, Bondo yeah. I think it connects to Bondi somewhere there, yeah. Yeah, because Bondi is still a very well-regarded hunting block. It is, and there was mm. a cracker fellow, a mate of mine shot there last season, come out. Um, yeah, very, very nice animal. But um, that particular area in Bondo was around a place called Packer Swamp. That's been now, that's now a national park. Oh, Okay. Um, but it was, yeah, a lot. And the, the red deer back then, down there, they had whoppity through them as well, so they were a very, very big animal. Um, mm. Had a couple of good roars down there. Never really shot much, but, you know, we did strike a roar down there one year, and it was it was quite good. And that was, again, was not not long after that, I shot off to New Zealand and experienced a New Zealand roar, and it was fantastic. You know? That's a bit different. Yep. <laughs> it is different, you know. Um, yeah, it's um, – had a – I never really struck – that was – that New Zealand Raw, the first trip over there, and I've had about 10 trips over there now, but um, it was a fantastic experience. And I hadn't experienced up until probably four years ago a red deer raw like that, and we struck it one year up on the Ridge Group ballot, and they were going nuts. And it's just the most awesome sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, really enjoy that. But uh, So then, um, so 96, 97, I got retrenched. That was after Port Arthur, and then I went on to – become the New South Wales, sorry, the Australian and New Zealand sales manager for Shakespeare Fishing Tackle. Oh, okay. And I held that role there for about seven or eight years and then went on to a become a director of an outdoor company, which we, I was part owner of. I walked away from that in about 2009 and opened up Field and Stream Barrel in 2000, yeah, 2010, it was. And we held that shop there for 10 years. So we went through the global financial crisis and then sold it just before COVID hit. And um, I think in hindsight, it was just timing was fantastic. Um, but it was a good little shop. And then I was in that shop for two years and I was um, approached by the importers of Wairak air rifles and Wairak rifles and H&N air rifle pellets down there in Melbourne, all cock and pierce. Yep, yep. Uh, so yep. that was in 2012. I become the New South Wales and South East Queensland sales agent for all cock and pierce. So I'm still doing that. So I've still got a wholesale gig, and I've been doing that now for, what's that? Oh, two is eight, nine, nine years. So so I still managed to get around the country, uh, New South Wales and Queensland, selling that. 
Um, and that's been very good. That's you know, it's kept in touch with all my wholesale customers from years ago. And then um, this year we launched Hook and Bone Trading Company, which is uh, just a range of hoodies, T-shirts and stickers and stubby holders and just mainly to keep my hand in that sort of particular game, you know. Um, I think it was about almost 12 months ago now I was approached by Shooters Union to become their New South Wales State Coordinator. Um, and that was a baptism by fire because I'd only been in the role about two months and I was asked to front the Senate inquiry into the New South Wales Criminal Use Bill. Okay. Now, I hadn't been in Parliament House since the school excursion back in the 70s. <laughs> a bit daunting? Uh, so, uh, it was a little bit daunting. Um, I've got to tell you, it was an experience I absolutely loved and I'd do it again tomorrow. Um, put a lot of effort. I hadn't even seen the, the Students' Union submission at that stage, so it was some heavy reading and getting on top of what the, 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 the issue was. And, um, yeah, it was, it was quite successful. We, we've ended up uh, with others, of course, WSAA and GameCon and others that were involved um, have managed to stifle the criminal use bill for now. And, um, but yeah, great experience, absolutely great experience. But I guess from an advocacy point of view, um, I first became aware of the attacks to firearm owners and hunting back in 88 before I got into the industry. That was when uh, Barry Unsworth made his ill-fated attack on New South Wales firearm owners. He wanted some drastic restrictions down here and, of course, he was voted out largely by the gun lobby. But when I got in the industry in 89, um, the industry was right behind the push to get Barry Unsworth out and full of firearms at the time. Did a lot at their own cost. Did a lot of the um, the marketing and the promotional campaigns to get that across to shooters. And I couldn't, you know, back then. I think '88. I think to myself, well, I just shoot rabbits. Why do they want to take my gun off me? Mm. You know, uh, I just couldn't. I couldn't get in my head why someone would want to do that. We're not doing anything, you know. And that was that's when I first became aware of it. And then um, in about well, I got married in '96. So I guess in about '94. Uh, it was about just after the Shooters and Fishers Party was formed down here. Um, I got hold of a document that John Tingle had put together on how to form a hunting club. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. More hunting clubs, more hunters, and, you know, we become stronger. So back then I formed the St George Hunters and Anglers Association. And it was back then the New South Wales regs dictated that you had to have a genuine reason to keep your firearms licence. It was a time when registration was coming in. Um, so you had to have a genuine reason. Genuine reason was being a member of a hunting club. So we kicked off the St George Hunters and Anglers Club. So that was about 94. So that's been going, that's still going now, a long, long time. And um, so that was probably my first step, I guess. And then from then, we just promoted new hunters to the sport um, as, as you do at hunting clubs. And you know, that was probably my first toe into the whole advocacy role. And since then, um, five years ago, I formed the Windsor Caribbean Hunters and Anglers Club. Yeah, one, yeah. Uh, that, that's a, that's a great little club. Um, you know, we it's growing reasonably slow, but we've been doing it that way. But it's it's a good little club. And I Craig, still, sorry, what was the name of that club? The Windsor Caribbean Hunters and Anglers Club. So that's located in the New South Wales Southern Highlands, <laughs> so it's down in Sydney. I still don't understand what you said. Sad <laughs> again, slow for Queenslanders. Sad, slow for Queenslanders. <laughs> Winja Caribbean. Winja Caribbean. Yeah, so it's a river 
in the Southern Highlands, the Ridge of okay. Cabbie River. So, um, so now Not that little club we've got caribou in the winter is what I'm understanding. <laughs> okay, moving along. We've got uh, we've now at the stage where we've got a little bit of a sub branch uh, forming down here in the Shoalhaven and the start of one hopefully in the New South Wales Central Coast. So, uh, but it, it's uh, yeah, it's, I find that quite rewarding. Um, and then probably seven years ago, I became a firearm safety awareness training officer uh, and our license loop uh, provider. Mm-hmm. And then Chloe got involved. Chloe. Chloe got involved oh, she was, when she was going to school and she just swing past the shop of an afternoon, you know, and so I guess maybe 12, 11 or 12, she got involved in the shop. Couldn't get her out of there. Couldn't, couldn't keep her out of there. Um, and then we did more, uh, over the time, we'd do our, um, all our gun shows. And then sooner rather than later, Chloe was taking over the gun shows and setting up gun shows herself. Uh, she then obviously got a license and all that sort of stuff. By the time I sold the shop in Barrel, Chloe was actually running it, and she had a stint there for about six or eight months, might have been 12 months, with the new owners as managing the shop. So that was good for her. And that exposure for Chloe at the gun shows and the shop, uh, she did a bit of work for the Shoes and Fishers Party as well. Um, She was picked up by, funnily enough, the same company I started with when I was 23, and she's now the Ridgeline rep for outdoor sporting agencies. So absolutely loving it and kicking some really good goals. So she's found a place there. But she's also the um, the business development officer for Shooters Union Australia as well. So she manages their social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook pages to a degree. Um, one of the things I find interesting, and it comes up all the time, is when you're sort of you're putting yourself out there to promote a promote a particular issue or a sport, there's always the people that'll come up and say, "What's your agenda? You've got to have an agenda. What are you doing it for? You're doing it for yourself. Well, I am doing it for myself, but I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it for my grandkids because I want to be able to hunt with my grandkids. Mm. I've been very lucky in that. Um, well, I guess my kids have been very lucky. They, in a very early age, they'd done more hunting than I did um, at the same age, and you know, very good hunters in their own right. Um, but that's the that's the thing that just drives me, being able to get more people into the sport. I think we averaged, um, before COVID, we were averaging about 120 firearms licence tests a year. Uh, we'd rent out the Barrel Bowling Club every sort of month and, and run a whole leap through there. Uh, that's quite enough now with COVID, but, um, you know, the big, the big thing for me is getting more people into the sport because we're under a constant attack by by others, you know, and... This month's been a busy month. We've had the animal welfare reform come out. Uh, we had submissions on that. We had the explosives regulations down here they wanted to change, which would have would have um, affected how much gunpowder we can hold for yeah. no other reason than just to to do something to justify their own existence. And now we've got the the noise guide for local government, which has a whole page or two two and a half pages on shooting ranges. You know, so it's just a constant attack that we need to be aware of. You know. Um, yeah, so that's sort of that's a an overview of what I what I'm up to and what I what I do, you know. Oh, wow, mate, that, you don't get much time for a beer, by the sounds of it. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, it's not been doing it for so long. It's not it's not a chore, mm. you know. Um, I'm I'm stuck at home now for nine nine weeks with COVID, and 
that's allowed me to sort of catch up on a lot of the shooters union stuff and uh, probably put a bit more effort into that. And uh, I'm on the shooters union delegate within GameCon as well. Yeah. Um, which is one of our peak bodies down here. We've been myself and the secretary of um, GameCon, who's the delegate for my hunting club. We've been very active in trying to get GameCon back on the radar of people. It's, it's sort of languished there for quite a bit as a peak body. And I guess that's one of the arguments I've got about peak bodies. That, you know, sort of, there's some good ones and there's some not so good ones, you know. they. Uh, that's what we've got down here and we've got to work with it, you know. Yeah, look, I, I plenty of questions, but I suppose the first one for me is, being that you've been in the industry for so long, I mean, what is what is what is the punter like today compared to the punter of thirty years ago who'd walk into one of your shops? Has there been a a cultural difference in the people who are who are buying from you or were buying from you, or is it is it? Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a cultural difference. Uh, there's certainly more more learned, I guess. Now uh, they'll come in knowing what they want. And, and prepared to pay the dollars for it. You know what I mean? Uh, you look at the way hunting clothing has evolved. You know, when I started hunting, it was uh, Swanee bush shirts and tracky pants. You know, I can, I can honestly remember having a conversation with a mate of mine, Steve Judd, and saying, wouldn't it be great if someone came out with a range of camouflage, tracky dacks and, and shirt hoodies? <laughs> and that it wasn't long bloody after that Swazi Apparel hit the scene. Hmm. John Natoli and Swazi Apparel. And yeah. from then the whole scene changed, you know, and the gear was good. The gear's the gear's excellent now. That Swazi gear, the first stuff we bought away from our Swannies and army pants, that would have lasted me twenty years. Yeah, it was military designed, wasn't it, mate? It was awesome stuff, you know. And now, of course, you got Ridgeline, you got uh, Spiker, you got Hunter's Element, and, and all sorts of other um, mm. companies and that, and, and they're all following that. That whole outdoor clothing style, and they're just good bits of gear. So that's that's the one thing. They're they're more learned, um, you know. They they're more because it's a younger generation, the millennials and, and younger again. They they probably they've grown up knowing the gun laws as they are now. So they're a little bit less. And we talk about '96, and try not to much these days because it's going back over old ground, but. You know, they don't understand what we had because they never had it. So there's been a, um, a, um, a cultural change there, generational change as well. You know, look at public land hunting. You know, we got, I think there's about 23,000 people down here in New South Wales with our losses for New South Wales public land. And a lot of them are younger people. Mm. You know, what about the numbers? Um, so, you know, when, when you started this, obviously hunting has grown uh, over those years, but, you know, the attack is growing as well, you know, from those that don't want us to have this this way of life and, and these pastimes. Um, do you find that the numbers are consistent? Are they growing consistently or are they shrinking? You're seeing people come through the door to get licenses, and I know COVID has made that um, interesting. It skewed the numbers a little bit, but... Do you think this 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 pastime is growing, or, or are we losing members? It's difficult. Look, if you if you went on the, uh, I think we're possibly losing members. That that seems to be the international trend. That there's less people hunting. Uh, 
the the older guys are getting too old to hunt, but we haven't got the same number of young people coming through. I would suspect that's that's the international trend. I I suspect that we're um, a similar trend here as well. Mm. We are seeing a larger prevalence now of ladies, women in the sport, which is one growth area. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I think we've seen less. Um, the numbers, if you would check the New South Wales Registry website at the moment, they'll state there's 241,000 uh, license holders in New South Wales and 190 of them, 190,000 of them have licenses for hunting or feral animal control or pest control. Um, that was 2020. I suspect those numbers are a little bit light on. I think it's probably a little bit closer to 300,000 in total. Um, but certainly pre-COVID, there was a bit of a push ahead. And I think, too, we went through a stage there where the shows like Meat Eater, um, that's one area where it's changed. There's there's a greater focus now on, well, I've seen anyway, in, in that people hunting, they are hunting physically now for the table. Mm. You know what I mean? That they're, they're getting there. I, I get a lot of people ask me, they want to lie, so they want to go hunting, they want to hunt for food. Yeah. That is that is prevalent, okay? Mm. And it shows like Meat Eater, um, and even your Facebook pages like Field to Fork or Paddock to Plate. Yeah. And even now, you know, um, some of our chefs, um, Maggie Bear, um, Annalise Gregory in Tasmania, very, very focused on um, gathering from the wild. You know, even Gordon Ramsay, you mm. know, hunting. He's had a go, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they all do it. They all recognise it. Yet we're still under attack constantly by the likes of uh, the Animal Justice Party, they are very, very well organised, far more organised than what any of our hunting organisations are, mm. you know. So, single purpose, uh, Craig, I think, single don't Single purpose, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I, I also think back to the food and, and, the, and the reason why people are, are coming through this for, a, you know, a, a quality protein for the table. Um, your comment earlier that people are coming to the stores, they're more learned, you know, they've got access to Facebook, they've got access to YouTube, they've got access to training on demand. I remember pulling apart the first red deer leg on my front bench. I actually had a young foster kid living with us at the time. And I thought, oh, I wonder how this is going to go. And um, I, I pulled the back wheel out and put it on the on the bench. And we got YouTube out and we put the iPad on the thing. And I said, you tell me how to cut it and I'll do the job. And and we dissected that thing muscle group at a time together on the on that was ten or twelve years ago or something, um, and it was a great learning experience. It, it was fantastic. But you you can then get into YouTube and and various other things or the media to cookbooks and things that come out that you you get access to because they're well promoted, and you learn how to cook properly. This whole um, you know home kitchen um, thing has has taken off. You know I was I was looking at. Uh, Housing demographics, just to digress a little bit, they were saying back in the day, uh, you would have a three-bedroom house with four children. One of the bedrooms was spare for a guest. Now now you have two children, five bedrooms, uh, and your communal space where um, your guests would come into is is your kitchen, you know, and, and the worktop around your kitchen and that open plan space, it's not, it's not the formal lounge that's set aside just for that purpose. So we've all moved into the kitchen and right. you socialise around the food and you socialise around the wine and you socialise around that whole process. And people are now wanting to experiment a lot more with their food. And I find that in our branch um, in, in the ADA, we have people joining us because they as a couple want to go and harvest 
you know, good quality proteins that yeah. haven't been through factory farming or, you know, whatever the thing is that they're concerned about. And I, I've seen that growth. It's it's incredible. And I, and I, I really hope that that growth would push along this this industry or this this part of our lives and help combat i guess the the negative yeah look we went back i think when deer got taken off the game status in new south wales we went back a, a fair way then mm. uh, because we had we had them recognized and as a renewable resource and the one thing that irks me as an advocate of shooting is the guy that the sole purpose of getting firearms licenses to shoot feral animals you know, and that's his way into properties. I'm going to help the farmer. I'm going to shoot feral animals. And yeah, look, that's that's credible. That's great. Foxes, rabbits, you know, but they don't see our larger game animals as the renewable resource they are. Yeah, you know, very true. That, very that true. pisses me off. Yeah. Know, because it's just a waste, you know, absolute that's waste. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and look, that's a one hundred percent. I mean, it's it's this crazy idea that it's a sunk loss, and you know, you you're going backwards with them. But the reality is, there's you know that they are a resource on a whole spectrum of being a resource. They're not only a resource in that first, you know, the most immediate where they're actually a, a meat animal. Then there's what follows that, and what follows that, and what follows that. You know, and that that deer has has the potential to make the state, a couple of businesses, and a few other people, yeah, three thousand, four thousand dollars. You know, it, it's yeah, actually, right. it's actually an incredible resource. Consider if you actually think about how far back it pushes. You know, from the fact that someone wants to shoot that deer, so they go through all these these steps and pay all this money to get there. I, I still say, you know, the most expensive meat in my fridge is red yeah, deer. I mean, it is. still running about five, six hundred bucks a kilo. Really think about it, you know. By the time I'm up there in my forty to fifty thousand dollars, I mean you're even worse. You just bought a more expensive car. By the time you bought that car, bought the gear, bought that, and then shot that animal, and actually think, okay, what's what's the true cost of that? It's it's remarkable. And I mean that's what they realised in the Northern Territory with Barramundi. Mm, yeah. you know, Barramundi are far more worth to the sports fishermen than they are to a gill netter. Yeah, and it's a it's a big a big rabbit hole to run down. I think uh, talking about the uh, the economic benefits etc. of of, uh, of hunting, and we probably won't chase that one today because we've had a really good session on that in a previous podcast. Um, but I am really interested in um, the the shooters union component of your world um, and how. Look, I, I guess I wasn't overly aware of it. Um, to be honest with you, I'm, I wouldn't say I've been in the industry a long time. Um, I've been around my little club a long time and um, I, I put a lot of energy into that, but um, certainly um, learned a lot more about Shooters Union, I think, and I could have this terribly wrong and that will require a lot of editing. Um, but through the COVID period, when all of these stores were being shut and um, restrictions of trade and all of those sorts of things, you guys were front and centre from what I remember, um, trying to advocate for these businesses to remain open and remain viable for, for our country folk. Uh, yeah. I've got that right, don't I, Craig? Yeah, yeah. to be fair, yeah, that's right. And But again, to be fair to everybody else, Shooters Union is just one proactive group. Um, mm. There are others that aren't so proactive, um, certainly, but Shooters Union, 
uh, we're constantly doing something. Uh, today was letters for me anyway. Today was letters to the New South Wales Firearms Registry over mandatory tenancies. There was letters about um, uh, the Mini 14 Ruger, which we found out, I found out today, was prohibited from February, since February this year. But no one was told, none of our dealers were told. So there's constantly something going on, you know. Um, attacks in Victoria, which have to get our attention. Every state's always got something going on in relation to firearms, you know. Uh, so there's constant emails and you know, I'm getting emails every day about people that have lost their license or they had their license application um, knocked back or their renewal knocked back. You know, Craig, what can we do? Who do you suggest? Well, we're not lawyers, but we give people the best advice we can at the time and recommend who they should see. And and then, and the response has been quite good, you know. Mm. But it, it is an issue. It is an absolute terrible issue down here. Um, the days of the firearms registry is going back 10 years doing a security check, they're going about 15, 18, 20 years until they can find a red flag event that allows them to say, no, you're not having a license or, or your renewal done, you know? And then it's um, a matter of uh, putting in your, your appeal um, and then, you know, legal advice is the, you know, where you go. And the whole, the whole reason for them doing this is the majority of people won't challenge it legally. Whether yeah. they think they've got a case or not, mm. you know? Um, I refer a lot of people to Mainstone lawyers. As I said, we're not solicitors, but we know a way out of it. And so I refer a lot of people to Stephen Mainstone at Mainstone Lawyers for these purposes, and he has a very good result through NCAT. But again, you can, all this is gets caught up in NCAT. It's not, it's, nothing's an easy fix. Mm. But, um, yeah, Shooters Union is very active, very, very active, you know. In, in all states except um, Victoria, funnily enough, they don't have anybody representing them down there yet, but uh, I think that'll come in, in due course. Yeah. And for the, the average punter that hasn't had a lot to do with it or understood what Shooters Union does, um, do you want to just maybe give that elevator pitch a bit more? Yeah, of a run? What, why should I be interested and, and what do you do Sh for the... Shooters Union, they advocate for firearm ownership for everybody, okay? Mm -hmm. Not not just the, the uh, sporting shooter or the target shooter or they'll advocate firearm ownership for, for everybody. Um, on, on every ground, um, semi-automatics, whatever it happens to be, they advocate for shooters in, as a whole, for industry, for employees that own, use firearms, the whole lot. Uh, so there's no there's no aspect that of uh, firearms that shooters union won't um, won't challenge. That's that's in a nutshell, really. Mm. Uh, the You've got a lot of specialist groups that's concentrating on specialist issues. Shooters Union is more encompassing than that. Uh, they, they're concentrating more in New South Wales because of the high prevalence of um, licences that are issued for hunting and feral animal control. They're becoming more focused on the hunting aspects of it. Um, we put out a press release earlier in the year. Do we want to try and get um, the general duck season back in New South Wales? That that created Shooters Union right behind that. That created a, a hell of a funeral. Um, but that's the sort of things we'll, we'll start the start the whole process going again. We once a month I'll send emails to um, various politicians about expanding national, state forest hunting to include selected New South Wales national parks. Okay, that's that's an ongoing thing with us. And again, I, I, I preface that by saying that there's there's other groups, WSAA, Shoes Officials Party, 
are all working towards the same thing. Uh, GameCon, um, same thing. And it's collectively that we're going to make a difference, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of in a nutshell, yeah. But yeah. the other thing too is um, you get a lot of bang for your buck with the Shooters Union. I think it only costs about $30 to join Shooters Union. And it's... Um, Here we go, guys. Hey, hey. <laughs> and it, it is it is on a percentage basis, it's the largest growing club in Australia. Yeah. yeah. You know, so... I yeah, joined the Shooters Union Pistol Club. Yeah. yeah. The the work that I saw Shooters Union do around that, that COVID period, which is really what brought it to my attention, um, certainly has is, is, um, impressed me and, and I'll push towards uh, a membership and advocating for membership. I think it's a great idea. Um, always wanted to talk to somebody about it and, you know, what they really focus on. And, and that's been a really good summary of that, Craig. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Sorry, as I said, with the depth of Shoes Union, without the, the in Victoria and South Australia, we're, we're chasing the issue of gel glasses for people. You know what I mean? So it's not just, it's it's everything that involves firearms or firearm-related issues. You know. Yeah. So how does the how does the message get out then, Craig? You, you obviously do a lot of training with with new hunters around your firearms. You're doing R license training and things like that. Yeah. So um, membership's uh, important. That's that's yeah. where your money comes from. So prior to selling the shop, um, I was doing all the a lot of inquiries come through the Firearm Safety Awareness Foundation for the licenses and that. So when I um, when I get contacted by people who want to get their firearms license, we go through the whole process of um, you know your firearms license, your general reason club membership, our license, very important. Uh, one of the things I did mention with our club, it is a prerequisite with our club now that. All our members must have an R license. Okay, they might not use it very regularly, but the simple fact is, if we don't support it, we'll lose it. Uh, and then you got the insurance benefits with it. So we push the genuine reason club membership R license, um, and we firmly recommend that people join a larger advocacy group such as Shooters Union. Okay, so we try to put the whole package together, and then um, not that it's taken up very often, but being the leap service provider, we can do the whole caping and butchering displays for people um, through our club. Uh, we've got the good premises for that. And, yeah, so we're trying to encompass the whole package, you know. Look, that's, you know, that's a really interesting approach. And, and to be, to talk about one of our previous guests, Ned Macon actually spoke about the fact oh, that, you know, yeah. he said, get the R licence simply that the more people have got it, the more weight it's got, you know, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, my uh, my membership of, of firearms and, and various clubs like that is, is very much in that. I, I often join a club really just as a way of donating to that club. So it's, I'm, in, I'm, more than, I'm in more than one club um, yeah. for that. And to be honest, uh, I... Um, I've been a member of um, Shoes, Fishings and Farmers in New South Wales for years, and I, I joined that as soon as I found out about public land hunting. That's the first thing I did. And so, you know, I've donated to Phil Donato's campaign. Yeah. They, you know, you know, that is another state, uh, and various other people over the time, simply because I think that's a really, you know, for me, that's a way of participating and actually supporting something that I, I directly benefit from. So I'm I'm very much I like that idea of you actually saying to your members, hey, look, it's not just about this. There's a whole range of 
moving parts here. And if you support those moving parts, we all better, you know, we get on better together. So I'm, I'm, I, that's very commendable, mate. It's a very interesting way of approaching it because often, you know, with clubs, they try to demonstrate how cheap they are and, and you know from a from a you know a, from a loss point of view well you join us it doesn't cost you much but I, you're actually saying well you know what spend a bit of money here spend a bit of money here spend a bit of money here and you'll get a lot more bang for your buck yeah that's right it's about value adding you know and giving yeah. making the experience a full experience for people you know um our little club introduced over the last five years quite a few people sample hunting in victoria you know um and these guys and and within two trips they were shooting samba you know we were able to put them into areas where we knew there was deer show them a few things and they were shooting samba those guys are on our committee now and, and, and teaching the next lot that come through you know we're encouraging the next lot so look that's very important i think um you you, you touched on the shooters fishers and farmers party yeah, in new south wales it would be we would be in a, in a in a terrible spot if it wasn't for the shooters and fishers party you know um, they do a lot of good work. Uh, you don't always see it, but um, behind the scenes, they're constantly advocating for shooters, you know. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I mean, and I think the important part of that is you don't see it. There's, you know, it just doesn't get, it just doesn't get the headlines. It's not, it's not that important from a, from a media point of view, but there's no doubt that it's a, it's a continuing battle and it's, they're always doing something, which I, again, I think one of the things that we really um, we've spoken about here, and it's you know the idea of how can you participate at some level, and, and it's about finding those people who are supportive of you. And very rarely you're going to get a hundred percent alignment, but you have to kind of make a make a decision. You know, is are they for, for me or against me, and and uh, figure out which side of the fence you're on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I I much rather support the concept. Than an individual person if the concept's sound and it's going in the right direction for our love of hunting and fishing and whatever happens to be you, you've got to support that concept you might not like the politics behind it you might not know how, you might not like how the cogs are working but the concept has got to be supported mm-hmm. yeah you know? um if that if that makes sense you know um and i oh, think people don't get yeah. that and they don't understand that with politics you know? no it's, it's not shopping you're not going to you're not going to the groceries and you're going to buy exactly what you want no. that's not that's not what it is you got to you got to find which one is you know pushes in the, the 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 direction that best supports you but you um you'd be a very rare person indeed to find one that you you know 100% support or 100% alignment so got well, any more questions for me <laughs> cuz i've got through my notes uh, I don't even know what he's got there. Sorry. Oh, it's just, thank you for joining. I'm now a member of Shooters Union. He's joined Shooters Union. What you fellas were talking, I just punched in my PayPal details and off we go. No, I've intended to do it for a while and you've just uh, you've just uh, got me into it. So that's fine. Excellent. Um, I don't have any other specific questions around shooting. I mean, I, I could probably come up with a whole bunch of them, but I'm, I'm quite interested in the in – the, um, the hook and bone business that you've started up to Craig and, and <laughs> what it's about and, and why, why that happened, because you talked earlier about it being a bit of a merchandise um, yeah. uh, business. Uh, but. Why did hook and bone happen? Righto. So I think Mark knows I'm a big fan of uh, 
the Ridge project, you've got in Queensland that Clark McGee kicked off and his mates so a few, 25 years ago, actually, I think, 25, 26 years ago. So I've done a little bit of hunting with Clark over the years, both uh, through Ridge and with him as a hunting guide. I shot a massive scrub bull with Clark. Uh, of hunt, and I hunted rooster with Clark a couple of years back. So that rooster you see on the hook and bone logo is actually the antlers and skull of the rooster I took with Clark, okay? Um, I had a photo of the rooster, this, of the head sitting there in camp, and I thought, geez, that's a bloody cracker photo. What can I do with that? So I ended up getting a tattoo, right, of the, the skull and the antler. Well, just, and I've always wanted a tattoo, and I thought, well, a hunting theme suits me, hunting and fishing theme. So, um, yeah, you'll see the logo. It's got the fish hook in the middle. Mm. That represents me hunting and fishing. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, shit, you know, hook and bone, right? And I thought, you know, and I, and I got a graphic artist onto it, and we come up with, you know, a, a, we clean the, the logo up a bit, and then my wife says, geez, that's a good logo, it's a good word, and I thought, oh, I might get a hoodie. So I got a hoodie, and then, of course, people want to see the hoodies, so I sold some hoodies, and then I'm selling hoodies now through Instagram and Facebook, and I like I like creating things that are hunting, you know, field and uh, field yeah. in Australia, um, you, you know, and you don't make a hell of a lot of money going to gun shows, you know, but you're interacting with other like-minded people. So you're selling something and you're making someone happy. They bought a knife off you or, or, or this, that, and the other thing. So, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, hook and bone. It's a sort of a love child, I guess. And we had to do T-shirts and hoodies and stubby holders. And, yeah, so, um, of course, COVID sort of slowed it down a bit because we've got no gun shows and we've got no field days. So mm. it slowed it down a bit. But I'm did the process of uh, developing a website and then we'll launch into more products. Uh, I've got access to a lot of products, uh, gun bags and all sorts of things. So we'll, we'll have the Hook and Bone logo. And hopefully we'll build it to the point of view where it'll become um, standalone and I can sell the products back to my retail customers and they can make some money out of it. So that's oh, a long time, right? Yeah, so um, just another feather to our business, but something I get a lot of enjoyment out of. I love, you know, it's funny, you know, like I did a recent Instagram promo and I think something like 25% of follow of people hitting the promo were from Victoria, mm. but they represented the most people buying the gear. You know, the amount of girls in Victoria buying hoodies for her, themselves and their partners, you know, it was, it was phenomenal. And it goes back to that sort of uh, per capita. I think Victoria's got um, the highest... Uh, percentage of, uh, of hunters per capita anywhere in the, in the state, in the country, you know, yeah. and they spend their money, you know, so. But yeah, and they've been, um, they've been locked away for yeah, nearly like, three quarters of a year with, <laughs> with, with the internet at their fingertips. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I do a little bit of public hand hunting in New South Wales, but yeah, given the time, I'll, I'll fly down to Corriong or Bright and hunt sand any day of the week. Mm. It's just, it's, there's a level of um, simplicity to it that we just don't have in New South Wales yet, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. But again, yeah, and again, you hunt Samba, uh, so it's it's worth the trip, you know. Yeah, well, we take a trip down from uh, from Toowoomba, where I am, usually with eight to ten guys once or twice a year. Yeah. To chase Samba, and it's um, it is a different world. It's it's. Uh, very much like the public land access that you have in New Zealand. 
it you is. Can, yeah. You can literally step off the side of the road almost in uh, in Victoria, not far out of the, the main township or 80k areas of Brighton well, into some of those places. Chloe and I, it was actually the focus of one of Chloe's articles, I think the October edition of Sporting Shooter. Uh, we we literally did that. We drove off the highway into a culvert, hunted a valley, put up a 24-inch stag in velvet, and mm. we'll go back there as soon as we can to hunt him again. Yeah. I was literally driving 200 metres off the road, parking the car and walking into the bush, you know? Um, yeah. When I went down for my very first time, we met a couple of, uh, I wouldn't say locals to there, but they were Victorian samba hunters, and uh, they met us uh, a bit outside of Bright and... I had this grand visions of driving up these gnarly tracks and getting into the yeah. back blocks of the snowy mountains that I, you know, I'd only heard about. I've never seen, and you know, we, <laughs> I still had a warm latte in my hand when I pulled into camp just outside of Bright. Yeah. It wasn't quite the adventure to get to the camp. Yeah. There was plenty of adventure to have after that. Don't get me wrong. And um, that that my very first um, attempt, we parked at camp and I, I walked up the gully just outside of camp on the first day after the 18-hour drive. And I walked straight into a big black samba stag yeah. 20 minutes after walking into the bush in a very dark gully under very dark trees. And he was just massive. And I could do nothing yeah. but stare at him in yeah. awe and let yeah. him walk away. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't let him walk away. He, he walked away on his own terms. Um, it's, I was uh, just dumbfounded. <laughs> I find samba deer hunting more addictive than other forms of deer hunting for that reason. Now, I've mm. shot yeah, a number of deer samba over the years. Never the big wall hanger, but bloody hell, I've had some opportunities. And you are, I'm still in awe of a, of a mature Sam stag. Aren't they impressive? Yeah. They are an impressive animal. Um, I missed, and I've got a habit of missing stags as well, Sam stags. I've got all the spikes and all the does under the sun, but I've, I've missed stags, you know. So, yeah. you know, just, uh, they're a great animal to hunt, always challenging, you know. Yeah, and that, that bright area and, I've heard it from a number of different people that there seems to have been a fair bit of culling activity going down there, um, be it baiting or culling, but there seems to be a lot of the valleys in there are a void of wildlife at the moment. Um, yeah, we went down there and... Stages. It goes through stages. I mean, um, yeah. but what you know, they, the Samba do, they're very resilient and they do bounce back very, very quickly. We we went into Coriong this year, the first time in two years after the bushfires, okay? And it's thick. A lot of regrowth, but the deer are back there in numbers. Mm. Yeah, Cor- I don't know whether you know, but Corion got absolutely razzed, absolutely smashed by the fires. But the deer are back there, you know, in, in huntable numbers. So um, they, they, they're very resilient and they, they bounce back very, very quickly, you know. Mm. So if you're a, um, if you are a, a, you haven't hunted Samba yet, this is a great question we're leading to. If you haven't hunted samba yet and you want to get in, you want to have a samba hunt, what would you be? What would be your recommendations? Um, I actually thought of this the other day because when I started hunting samba, it was the same question: where, where do I go? All I was told then was the Buckland Valley, yeah. uh, down near Bright. That's where we were on one of yeah. ours. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, when we over. We didn't shoot. I think it took me two years to shoot my first stag, my first deer, salmon deer solo down there. And then over the years, I worked out that every sort of three days or four days we were in the bush down there, we'd take a deer. So it's a matter of the first day or so, you're looking for sign, then you're hunting it, and then give it three or four days, you'd shoot a deer. The numbers of deer down there now are a lot more than what they were back then. Uh, so that was the advice they gave me back then. Just go to the Buckland Valley, start there, and you make you made it up for yourself. 
you know. Mm. These days we've got the benefit of um, Errol Mason did that uh, series of books called Secrets of the Samba. Are you yep. guys familiar with that? Yep. Well, where he put his first book out, and I, I've just, I don't know how many times I've read it, because you'd, you'd come back from a trip and you got it in your mind, everything you've seen, and you go back to the book as a reference. Oh, shit, I've seen that. And, you know, <laughs> hot stag marks or this or that or the other thing. So, you know, they were a real godsend to, to Samba deer hunters, especially those that couldn't get down there every weekend like the Victorians can, you know. So it's, and so information on, on Samba deer hunting now is, is a lot better than what it was. So if someone come to me at the club and said, Craig, I've, I've shot this, that and the other thing, I really want to have a crack at Samba, where should I go? I'd be inclined to send them somewhere like Corion, okay, um, there's a couple of valley options from Corion, uh, Thalgua Valley, Nariel Valley, and then you can go further down. Uh, it, it goes all way through to uh, right through the back blocks there. Um, lots of options there and a lot of areas to hunt. The, the other thing too these days is a lot of the Samba deer country has got a lot of fallow through it as well. Mm. So, um, you know, over that bright way now, there's red deer through there as well. Uh, so there's a lot more deer than just Samba, but yeah, I'd, I'd be inclined to sort of go Corral that way, and then um, yeah, the well-known valleys of Nariel or Thalwa, and then the map system is very easy, you know. And you literally are driving off a main road onto a track, and then you can hunt, you know. So, and so, what are you? Are you staying in the bush? Are you taking your kid? Are you staying locally in the town? What 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 would uh, be? Well, why Coriong is easy is that there's you know, a caravan park there, very, very close to the hunting area. So there's no sort of four o'clock starts to get into the bush. Um, the hunting, it's a very steep country, but there's a high prevalence of animals. So, and a lot of fringe country as well. So you're hunting fringe country. Uh, you know, you, you, for the newbie hunting Samba, he's going to pick up sign fairly quickly. Mm. Might not be Samba, it might be fellow sign, but. He's going to pick up signs straight away, and that's going to encourage them along. Is it um, um, national park or state land? Uh, national park in parts and state forest. So you, parts, yeah, you couldn't. Oh, so there's opportunities for indicating dogs, not 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 dog okay. teams, so to speak, but indicators. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there is in this area. Yeah, um, so yeah, you just got to be careful of the 1080 baiting down there. Yeah, yeah. I run a I run a trained um, indicator GWP, but. She's also um, pretty well trained on the muzzle. She yeah. um, she won't even touch a, a, a raw steak on the ground in front of her with the muzzle on, which is yeah. great. But she'll swallow it whole <laughs> if you take it off. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're the same in state forest country up here. You go into Nundal, go into the Severn, and all of these places, and it's it's quite heavily baited these days. So you've got to be careful with your dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that'd be my advice, Mark. Yeah, hunt that sort of fringe country, and, and then you can sort of as you. Yeah, like everything, you get better at it. You, you push it further field, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I mean, as you said, the suggestion is where that that area you're talking about. If you wanted to, you could you could either camp or you could stay in the caravan park. So you, uh, by the sounds of it, you you don't need a four wheel drive. You could probably get two wheel drive access in a lot of places. Yeah, look, obviously four wheel drive will get you further places. We were in Chloe's um, Triton two wheel drive Ute. The last trip and that that got us where we needed to go. Yeah. I own Navara, so it's off the road as often as it's on. So yeah, we had the we had the little Triton down there and yeah, it was yeah, no, no, no hassles at all. 
You know? Oh, the, sorry, that was a reference to four-wheel driving not being broken down. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, I was just picking up on that. <laughs> was a try. Um, yeah. oh, no, but that's a good tip. No, that they're, they're good tips because there's a lot of people that, that might get down there once a year. And, you know, like I said, we go down once a year. We're just picking up a tip or two from from uh, from people that are willing to share. And you end yeah, up right. in a town like a Kariong or a Bright Um you know, we've we've had an interest of um, towing the boats down there and and going across one of the lakes. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's Dartmouth or something like that. And, yeah, Dartmouth, and, Eildon, another one. Yeah, yeah. Or camping off the side of the lakes or something like that. But it, there's so much country there, and you know, we always see sign. You know, what I was saying before about it being void of lice last time that that Buckland Valley area, you wouldn't see a bird, a deer, you wouldn't see anything in there. And we thought, oh, what are we doing wrong? This is this is terrible. We jumped over the valley to the other side of the highway running through Bright and went up into there and we were onto the deer straight away. Yeah. That valley, um, and I had a lot of people contact us through um, social media accounts, we chucked a video or two up, um, just saying, yeah, it's, it's just been um, hammered by um, by colours and, and baiting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just interesting that one year after another the, the, the whole landscape had changed. Uh, and like I say, they'll, they'll come back again. But it's a beautiful valley, it really is. Well, I think that that highlights that uh, one animals will move under pressure, regardless of what the pressure is. And I was watching your uh, one of your podcasts about uh, New South Wales state forest hunting and how a lot of new state forest hunters will give up on a forest after the first trip. Okay, mm. they didn't see anything. They've driven around, didn't see anything. You know, every season is different, so the forest yeah. changes every season. And my advice to people hunting New South Wales state forest is don't just write it off after the first time. You got to go back in all sorts of weather. You got to go back at certain different times of the year and put that picture together. Yeah. Um, you know, well, the story when Chloe shot her her eleven point red stag um, and hunting 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 luck changes that quick. You know, we'd been hunting up in the Brisbane Valley for reds. It was the probably the first week of the April school holidays down here, so we could get back for Easter. It was hot. The stags were shutting down at sort of seven thirty in the morning after roaring all night. Um, and it was Chloe's turn to shoot a, a stag if we could, so we were working really hard. So we we're four days into a, a six-day hunt, and I was I was knackered, just worked really really hard. And um, another morning we got busted, and you know, it was hot. We went our way back to the car, and Chloe said, "Look, just give the the roaring horn another go." And just like that, we got an answer. Not ridges away, right in our bloody lap, mm. you know, and then it was all on. And that's hanging up on the wall now behind me, a nice 11-point um, red stag. Hunting luck, you make your own luck. Um, and the more you're in the bush and, you know, putting that picture together is what's important, you know. But too often people are too prepared now to write off a state forest without sort of really giving it the, the opportunity it deserves, you know. Mm. Yeah, look, it's an interesting thing. Um, I think one of the, the great joys of public land hunting is that it's not easy. So I always yeah. say that you know, you know, people people talk about trophies and you know, and various approaches to trophy maintenance and how do you, how do you keep good stock going with you know with it or, or what you might call game management. I feel that you know, if you hunt successfully in the state forest, you've done the legwork. If it's there in front of you, you take it. You you've earned that animal. That's that's uh, there's no there's no one saying oh they're down the back blocks or this or anything. you've earned that animal and you go for it. But I think and I think that's why 
when you talk to people who hunt state forests, they actually kind of get that kind of weird look in their eye because, you know, it's actually an adventure every time you go. One of the guys we had on before, Jace, was, you know, very experienced private land hunter. Went to you know state for went to state forest hunting and you know completely different approach. Yeah. And, uh, so I think it's uh it's it's right you know too many people are going to go I went there there's no game there or something like that yeah. you know and yeah. it, but the thing is it's just not waiting for you you've got to go out and find it. Yeah, there's a there's a forest just uh oh, southwest of me that a 15 point red stag come out this raw right by a bow hunter. He went back two days later and shot a 10-point red stag in the same area. Uh, during the off-season, outside the rut, there is no deer sign in this place. Right? They, they come in, they make their scrapes, their wallows, and then they're gone again after the rut. Someone going in outside the rut wouldn't know there was deer there. This young black had put the effort in. He's a client of mine. Put the effort in, and it paid off. He was in there looking for a, a big fallow stag, actually. Okay. And he shot this beautiful 15-point red stag wild red stag and a 10 point the next the next day i think but um yeah so you just gotta put the effort in they're there you know but um all you need is one print yeah yeah there's deer there somewhere you know that's right you just need yeah, a sign to give it to, to, to motivate you and follow it up and away you go yeah look um one of the things that really interests me about you know some of the work you're doing and, and and the time you've been in the industry and this idea of you know getting people and as you mentioned you know one of the things that we started the podcast was to help people get it started i'm sure you've noticed it but and, and even your story reflects that you know you had someone to kind of mentor you in a hunting but a lot of people now from a generational point of view don't have that mm. mentor they haven't started with their mentor, so they're starting from scratch. Yeah. And uh, and to me, this is a really important thing because that that's exactly my story. There is no Vanden Bogart great hunter in, in you know yeah. in my just, maybe there is don't know him or her don't know him. So it was starting from scratch. So for us, you know, and and, and you know, Ian's saying it's how do you get started and i think for a lot of people there's a lack of or i wouldn't say it's confidence but a probably a too much of a fear of the unknown to to have a crack at a state forest and something like that so someone comes in your store or contacts you via you know the various social media what's your advice to, to get them going to get them to have a go because it's that's i find that's the big step for a lot of people to actually have a go if they're, they're straight up green and just want to get a firearms license to go hunting uh, because they've seen Meat Eater or yep. they've read a cookbook, right? And there is a lot of lot of people doing quite a lot of that. It's it's the first step is your local hunting club. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's right, so not important. Has a, uh, I said I think that's so important. Yeah. Not everybody has a mentor. We've been lucky. My kids were lucky, but not everybody does. And you know, a, a local hunting club, and I think there should be a local hunting club in every bloody region, you know. They're not hard to get going. Um, and that's the first step because from that point, you're, you're sort of, you're introduced to not only the rabbit shooter but the deer hunter, the pig hunter. You know, you, you, you'll find your little niche amongst that and then it's not untoward that some will take you under their wing through their, their education programs or little tricks of the trade and you just listen to conversations where you you, you pick up a little bit about Koryong or 
Oberon or, you know, best places to camp. And, and all of a sudden, you're, you're putting a picture together yourself. You know, you might get lucky if someone invites you out on a hunt, you know. But those those meetings, those club meetings where they're having – where venison's on the, on the, on the menu there, um, they're, they're priceless, you know. Mm. You, you can't buy that information. And this is uh, – hunting clubs, when – when the laws changed down here in 96, 97, and it became mandatory to be a part of a hunting club, that was probably, the, in my mind, the only good thing that came out of the 96 gun laws. Right, eh? Um, and the, it was a growth of hunting. It was, a, it was a, like another golden period in the growth of hunting, you know? I think that's diminished a little bit now, um, but it still is the best starting point, you know? That's that's my advice, local hunting club, and uh, through GameCon actually, we'll or Shooters Union will put people in touch with their local hunting club. You know, that's why I think it's so important that the big clubs are active in uh, the big peak bodies are active in establishing hunting clubs in areas where there's not hunting clubs. Mm. You know? um, hence why the, our little Windsor Caribbean club is looking at a sub branch in the Shoalhaven. Uh, there's clubs down here, but you know, another one won't hurt. You know. I think they also um, they play a really good role in um, filling some space. And what I mean by that is hunting is not an easy thing to get into. The day you pick up the media the cookbook or watch a media video, you can't yeah. rock on down to the gun shop, get your rifle, get yeah, in your car and not. drive down the, down the park and go and knock yourself over something to eat. It doesn't yeah. work that way. So, and we're all impatient. Well, not yeah. all of us, maybe. Some of us are less impatient than others. But the demographic that are coming in now they want it now. They're, they're yeah, ready to go and shoot point. a twenty-point stag, get in a helicopter, and go skiing in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, it doesn't happen in this in this world. So once they've got their enthusiasm and they go and have a conversation with someone at the gun shop, they need a club to keep them stimulated, almost motivated, to, yeah. to get them motivated to go through that six, eight week, ten week process. Get your first firearm, and off you go. If you're lucky to get it that quickly, and then get invited on a hunt. It could be it could be six months. And I have this conversation with people weekly that call after listening to the podcast and, and wanting to understand how to get into it or or, or just calling the ADA because they've found us some, somehow. Yeah. Um, they're keen as mustard. And it's really important that we try and keep them motivated until they get going. Um, and that sometimes can be nothing more than, look, we're going on a hunt in, in three weeks' time. You're not going to be able to shoot, but come anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, we'll you, up you can experience a lot. So. Even having you know, regular trips to the rifle range during the off-season so they can shoot a variety of calibres so they can identify you know, what their limitations are, what they shoot best or worst. You know, I think our last club day, one of the boys had a 416 Ruger there, mm-hmm. uh, a 375 Ruger, one was ported, one wasn't. So that, that, that sort of was a little bit interesting for people. I shoot a 338 a lot and... You know, um, it's usually when people shoot that, but trying a wide variety of uh, calibers by people that actually are using them. They're mm. not necessarily behind the counter trying to flog you something they've got a lot of, but they're actually using calibers for, for various um, purposes. Uh, you know, and, that, and that's, you know, like I've got this little, these little doohickeys here. Um, we had Marcus O'Dean from Sporting Shooter come and do a talk at our club a little while back. And how many times you've been out fox shooting of a night and you're, I like to take that pelt home and you're scrambling around the dark looking for a pair of sticks to take the tail off, you know. 
there's a you know, little little club exercise where we had some 10 mil Dow on a high vis string, and you know that stays in the backpack now. They're the sort of things that keep people, as I say, motivated and um, and hanging around while the license goes through the process. You know. Mm. I think that's I like the idea too, you know, of actually getting people to the range because one of the things, you know, shooting, especially shooting, is like everything. It's 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 susceptible to trend, and I, a lot of the, the a lot of the conversations I have with people is that there's a there's a disappointment with the firearm that they own, and because they, as you said, they bought what was on the shelf or what was offered to them, and it doesn't fit, per, you know, it's not fit for purpose. It it's fit for the purpose that it was designed for. But it doesn't fit their purpose, you know. And and so getting there and actually saying, well, you know what, you know, yeah, you can get a rifle that can, you know, that that can shoot a flea at five five thousand yards or whatever it is, but that's not the situation you're likely to find yourself in when you're hunting. And uh, I remember one. I was very recently. I was at the range and having this conversation again with someone about the, you know, he was a little disappointed. Certainly, this thing he had could shoot off a bench like no one's business but after three or four hours lugging it through the scrub he, he was a little bit you know, he was a little bit it, was, it didn't fit for purposes he wanted to the 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 movement towards uh long range hunting now is is one of those areas where people let uh, you know you've seen people shooting samba now at sort of six seven hundred eight hundred nine hundred sixty meters is one of them you know uh, using their three through eight laps or their their three hundred Remington Ultra mags or whatever it happens to be, well, not a lot of people can handle the recoil of those things either. You know, no, what I mean? no. a lot of people are shocked. Um, and, and one of the things that you know, recommendations I want a pig rifle. Well, yeah, the three is very popular, but a lot of you know a small frame person might not handle the recoil of a three hundred eight. You know, so this is where those range days are important, where they can test things out. They can shoot better place the bullet more accurately and still get the same result. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I helped a friend get a, his first couple of animals and, you know, we, he, he took a number with the, with the two to three and there was an opportunity for a, a larger game and we put him on at 6.5 and he just couldn't yeah. handle it. So yeah. we actually went, well, you know what? The game, let's find the, let's find the game that suits that, that caliber. And I mean, he's still got himself a very nice um, fellow deer um, in the right situation. But yeah, he just could not handle that six point five, and he was—I could actually see that he was talking himself out of handling it. You know, he was starting, yeah, to, we do. Yeah. starting to anticipate how much this thing was going to bark and kick on him. And I mean, it was a six point five Swede, which is not a, which is not a, you know, is not a gun that mauls you. But for him, that was at that point where it was a bit too far, and and that's that's really, you know. I think a really important part of that club scene because, to be honest, I I didn't get that. The first, the first rifle I bought, the first Center Five rifle I bought was a thirty thirty. Yeah. Because you know I watched too many cowboy movies, and mm-hmm. you know, the first time you let a thirty a thirty thirty off on your shoulder the first time ever, you realise what you've got in your hand. <laughs> yeah. It's not what they're shooting in cowboy movies. But, you know, so that for me, that was a, you know, a big learning curve. But for a lot of people, you know, that that's the kind of thing that can put you off. Luckily, I was not bright, bright enough to be worried about it and I kept on going. But having a club situation where, and even if it's a small club where you can get that advice, you can have to talk to people and you might be able to, as you said, have a range day or just, just 
key up with someone and say, hey, look, I'd meet you at the range, get a bit of experience on different approaches, different things, and get yourself sorted. Because I find that that because there isn't this network anymore where you kind of learn these things from people within your family, people have to take a little bit more of a leap of faith into getting into hunting. And I think sometimes people get lost on that leap when it doesn't first work out. You know, it just doesn't work for them. When um, we, I went through the same thing with Chloe, so we went through the whole two to three stage, and I was still actually now I'm shooting a 250 Tika, but that's another story. But it was a two to three that we shoot most of our fellow deer with, right? Um, we've got smaller properties, uh, we've got to watch where the bullets are going, all that sort of stuff. But of course, she wanted to hunt red deer and then later samba deer, which is now we went through that whole 6.5 squid and up to the 308. I found it was the noise that was the big issue, not so much the recoil. Um, and it was a 243 wind that she ended up shooting her red stag with. Mm. Um, so she could shoot well, uh, place the shots, and it had the same result. So, yeah, it's, it's vitally important. To have, and this is a the problem these days, too, is that and you, people aren't doing the amount of shooting with varying calibers. You know, when we started, we were, we'd we go to Broken Hill chasing gats and we'd have too many guns with us, all different calibers. And we shoot off a lot of rounds of ammo. Uh, big properties, safe to shoot. But no one does, no one's, just doesn't seem to me that people are, are shooting the wide variety of calibers and actually finding out what suits them best. That's because they're, they're on the internet, they're being told what's best. You know, 6.5 Creedmoor. Yeah. Oh, I'll get a 6.5 Creedmoor. Yeah, it's in vogue, yep. Yeah, look, and I, I I completely agree. I I also feel I feel you know I feel for those people who don't have that ability to to try those things out because that's been big part of what we want to do is kind of give them the confidence to have a go because that's it. You know, if if you don't have that and you don't have that connection, you're going to go the next best thing, which is you know social media, and of course you know probably the what the most other than cat photos, you know. Yeah. Is questions about what's the best gun should I buy? You know, I think half, I think half of that is actually still going back to the impatience of mm. the new hunter. Uh, he doesn't want to go through that process. I'm working with a fellow at the moment. He's new to the club. He's never shot an animal in his life. He's he's restraint. He's got enough restraint to say, look, I'm not ready for that yet. I want to get used to a rifle. He's got his license, and I lend him a 22, and he goes down to the range. And he shot that 22 for six months. Yeah. He just go down the range and he shoot that 22 for six months. And then I'll end him a 223. And he's been down there for three months with the 223 before he had to go with the 308 and the 270. And he's now decided what he wants. And it's none of the calibers that he, he borrowed off me. It was something completely different. But but he went through the time. Now, he's probably the first person in 10 years that I know that's done that. Everyone else is is too impatient to do that. They don't want to buy all of those boxes of rounds. Rounds are expensive, you know, and, and they don't want to go through that process. I just I just don't think these people, I say these people, you know, a, a lot of new hunters that are coming in don't have the patience. Uh, patience and opportunity. Like, you, you go back to, they spent six months at the range when he's 22, right? Back in the early 90s, we'd be going out shooting rabbits. Yeah. Okay? We'd yeah. take each of us, three or four of us, 500 rounds of ammo each. Yeah. And we'd shoot 500 at rabbits each. Yeah, opportunity. Yeah, they're not there anymore. So you're not doing that shooting. And no. of course, your rabbits. Oh, there's foxes too. 
what do we well we'll get an odd fox with 22 we missed the odd fox so 22 magnums and two to threes come into vogue yeah now then we were shooting rabbits at 150 trying to move with the two to threes well how far can we shoot with a two four three yeah yeah, yeah. and you know when an uncle would have one or your dad would have one or you could borrow it off someone and it was just well okay but we shot that and with the two four three at 200 meters why do we miss the one at 350 meters so then you then you're looking at your the the whole progression of uh layers and bullet weights and trajectories and before we knew it we were sighting our two four threes at three oh eights three inches high at 100 yards to shoot goats and pigs at 400 yards Mm. you know it was but that's what i mean when people don't uh, the social media has, has and, and the internet has made it so that they're not doing that now. You know, uh, an opportunity. Yeah, it's easier to to watch some dude doing it on a YouTube clip. Yeah, and buy everything yeah. he's got. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, you just remind me of the good old days. <laughs> well, that, that's a, that's an interesting point you made, the good old days, because you know that that that's a, a common theme. But I, I I always I don't question it, but I think that, that the reality is that for a lot of us there is no good old days. These, these we're making the good old days yeah, now. Right now. You know, yeah. and that's it. So and that's what it's always been a big push for me is about how do I get someone to start making their own good old days? Because as Sid, there was never any good old days. My old man passed away when I was quite young and, and he did take us fishing a couple of times but it was you know a handful of times but you know for whatever reason I don't know I don't know why maybe it's you know the milkman or something like that but I've always wanted to fish and I've always wanted to hunt um no one else in my family does but I mean that's not that's, that's just the way we are and um so it was always just there for me so I pursued it with you know with with well as soon as I got a car yeah, that's that's I, the I drove the Belmont Range. I drove the yeah. Belmont Range and, and yeah. literally turned up there and said, hey, you know, my name's Mark, I want to shoot guns. And they said, yeah, we can help you with that young man. Mm. <laughs> and away we went, you know. And so, and that was 32 years ago. Yeah. So uh, that kind of stories, well, that's my story, but a lot of people I know are kind of at the start of that story and they, they, they don't know where to start or how to start because they haven't got that good old days to rely on. So, and I, I, I feel for them because, they, they, you know, they, I know that they're going to make a lot of decisions along the way that they kind of yeah. go. Well, mate, so when, when you started hunting and, and fishing as well, did you did you naturally then take the fish and the, the game you shot home for the table? No. No? No. So, so when – yeah, that's a different. So, the, so when I I lived in inner city Brisbane, okay, I, I lived in inner city Brisbane, which right in the city there, which in the you know the what they used to call the bedroom uh, suburbs like Paddington and all that, where mostly mostly working class worked the railways and, and the various such. So they're all completely different now. They're all you know the, like every inner city suburb. They're now the you know the, the high end of town, but once upon a time they were just the, the working class. I grew up there. I was always interested in being outdoors, even though there was no. I lived in inner city, so you know from an early age we were catching trains out to the bay or exploring and stuff like that. And fishing for us was the Brisbane River, so we used to go down to the Brisbane River. And at the time, um, Schultz's Gun Shop, which was a, a well-known gun shop here in Brisbane, that's uh, and I it's closed down now, 
they were actually still in the city. So they were in, they were in George Street, which was right in the city. And they used to sell tackle by weight. So we could go in there and buy two hooks and sinkers and swivel, and they'd put it on the scales and put it in a little paper bag and sell it to us, and we'd go down and fish in the river just with, with line and catch catfish. Mm. You know? And that was out of the Brisbane River in the early 70s. So basically they glowed in the dark. You know, There was so much you wouldn't <laughs> want to hit in. You know? they would, uh, and so that was my start to fishing, and then I started to get, you know, go out to the bay and with and because – and, you know, do more saltwater fishing and things like that. And as I got older, I, I got more and more advanced in fishing. Um, there was, until we got to the time where I was actually bringing home fish, so brim and whiting and all those kind of things. With hunting, it was, again, starting from scratch. I used to, the first 10 years of my hunting was armed bushwalks. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd be wandering around. And then we got onto a property up um, central Queensland that had pigs um, but there was never any ever ever consideration of taking those animals home to eat. Oh, you know, monkey yeah, eggs well, didn't touch them. Uh, well, I don't know, and I don't know if they were, but that was the general consensus. So it was only when we really started chasing deer that there was this idea that that's actually a food, and and of course goat. But yeah. actually, I started deer before I started goat. They were that was a food source. Yeah. So that's pretty new to me. So I've yeah. only been doing that for, for a fairly short time. And I mean, I, I know I like to do it. I mean, uh, we've got a chest freezer downstairs and I think there's 16 full meals made up with a butcher of venison. Yeah. Um, and there's the dogs as happy as um, dogs yeah. as happy. And there's fish in there as well. And But that's all pretty recent in a lot of ways. And I'm I'm very basic in that that journey so i you know i want to get into making sausages and things like that but so. yeah well, the when i shot my first rabbit and i was 12 years old a single shot bow air 22 and I remember the old man saying back back mum at the campsite if he hadn't got any closer he could have touched it right mm. i can I still vividly remember the vapor trail and that was those days it was winchester's super speeds right mm. and the vapor trail of this gully was nice cool gully but Dad didn't hesitate when we went out to camp, cleaning that rabbit and putting it in the esky. Yeah, you know, and that has stuck with me for forever. So when I when I started deer hunting, there was no no question or goats. There was no question of um, not not trying to eat them. And mm. and, and like uh, Ian said, it was a matter of trial and error. You yeah. know, separating the different the various muscle joints, which I felt reasonably easy to do. But Mum, Mum. <laughs> You know, the first Sandra I brought home, there's two freaking big legs, you know, on the kitchen sink at mum's place. Yeah. What are we going to do with all doing? that? <laughs> oh, we'll be right, you know. Uh, and I was, I was loaded into mate's place with handfuls of venison, you know. You should have been with me. I've got one. Oh, you know? yeah. But um, that's what I say, like, you know, for many meat eater, the show is um, it's like you're turning on the, 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 turn on the lights. It's reminding but, people. Yeah. But then I think to myself, yes, yes, but then I think to myself, all he's doing now is making it cool again. Yeah. Well, for many of us that, that, you know, that were brought up, it was just the way you did it, mm. you know. And and by the same same token, he's taken the emphasis away from, you know, your horns and antlers and making the trophy the meat. Yeah. Mm. You know, and and truly it is. 
you know, the first deer we shoot of every season, you know, we'll be looking for a buck or a stag. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, there's a doe. Yep, there's, done. Yes, he's full. Monkey's yep. off your back. Oh, there's another one. Loses, a couple yep. days later. But that's the first thing we do, yeah. You know? Yeah, look, there he I was watching one of his episodes and 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 what really rang for me true is that he he's talking to himself like he does and he goes, Be a good predator. Yeah. And I think that very simple statement kind of encapsulates what we're talking about with, with meat, because that's what you're doing. You're you're being yeah. predacious, you know. Red of red of tooth and claw, you know, you're actually taking that thing for food. And as I said, that's only been a, a fairly recent thing for me. And I don't mean like, you know, two weeks, but I mean, in my, my hunting journey, it's, it's been in the latter part of my hunting journey where, I, where I'd be, well, one, I've hunted game that you would eat. And also, too, um, like a lot of things, there were certain, you know, myths, which I, and I regard them as myth now, like don't ever eat a pig. You know, never eat a pig. Yeah, don't eat right. a pig. You know, whatever pig. I've eaten pigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, They're like any kind of animal. They're either good ones or bad ones. That's right. You have enough knowledge to figure out what one is what, yeah. and, and and treat the meat in such a way that you know you reduce all those risks. And yeah, that's you know, right. Okay. Um, and that's it. But there was for for you know through my twenties and into my thirties, where we were hunting in central Queensland. You know, the there was you didn't even pick them up. You shot them and you let it, the the property owner says you just let them sit where they lay. You know, let them rot out on the ground. Yeah. So there's no idea. There was no in this that particular instance about taking meat from these animals at all. Yeah, it's funny, you know, like the pigs we have taken to eat, and it's not very regular that we'll take pigs home because, especially ones out west, you know. But uh, where we've shot them in New South Wales state forests around Oberon and stuff like that, uh, they're a good pig, you know. Mm. They're a good pig, and it's, it's just another resource, you know. But, yeah, you know. I've shot, as I said, if, if, if they're kind of in line with the, the, the New England Highway around there, mm. you know, the the pigs I've shot along the very state forests in line with the New England Highway have been very good animals. Yeah. The ones further west, like on the Newell and past the Newell, yeah. then you start to get into animals that are, you know, and they, and even then, though, that. I've been in Pilliger in, in certain years where the pigs have been of very good quality. I've been in the Pilliger in other years where basically you can just tell. Yeah, don't touch it. Yeah, there you can just look. That is not a meat animal. No, yeah. I have a I have a fear of that because I'm uh, terribly colourblind. Hence the the reason I've got a dog that can track blood because I can't see that on anything. Um, but I couldn't tell you if pork was cooked. And I know if you don't cook pork properly, especially wild pork, you can get all sorts of nasties. So yeah. I just leave it alone. Uh, no interest whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, that, that and again, that's you know that that's individual choice. But for me, as you said, that that journey towards as hunting as a food source has has taken some time to get there so and i mean in, in a way you know it's kind of it hasn't revigorated but it's ex again it's it's made it more expansive once again to mm. actually think okay i can do something else now with this and, and it's funny you talk about rabbits because i'd shot pig deer and goats before i shot a rabbit yeah, well, Queensland, mate, there's not many up there. Oh, yeah, it's right. No, there's heaps up there. You're talking about property in, in Ben Lomond, you know, yeah. in New South Wales. That was the first time I'd really shot, mm. any, shot any number of rabbits. 
and that yeah. was three or four years ago. I'd never had rabbits. Yeah, um, I think and rabbit so was the yeah. rabbit was the first thing that I well I didn't even shoot it, but it was the first thing that was shot with a rifle that I was present. That was my dad shooting it. Yeah. I think I was I, I must have been a good enough boy at Sunday morning church, and I said, "Come on, let's let's go shoot a rabbit when we get home from church," and off we went. But that got that got quartered up and pan fried. Um, yeah. But I mean, coming from a country town in New Zealand, a, a lot of the um, I mean, all, all hunting was for the table. I don't, I don't even recall anyone just going hunting for the sake of it um, and leaving things there. Everything was eaten. Um, I remember a time where uh, my father had passed away and, and I, I missed out on duck shooting season, which was very exciting for me as a young boy. And I was down at the local river and there was some ducks swimming. I thought, oh, ducks. I'm going to get one of these ducks. <laughs> so I picked up the first rock. And I threw it at this duck and I missed it completely. I thought, oh, but it didn't go away. So I picked up three more rocks. And, and on the fourth rock, I sconned it in the head and it tipped upside down in the water and floated down. And I caught it at the other end. I thought, you beauty, I'm, a, I'm an eight-year-old mighty hunter. Uh, just down from where I was was the Christian camp that had let go a bunch of ducks and clipped their wings and put them <laughs> in. And I had no idea. And it wasn't until I was walking back to the house thinking how proud I was that I grabbed it by its feet and its wings flipped open and they were all clipped. I thought, oh, what a bastard! But we we still eat, we still ate it. Still ate it. Right. It was yeah. part of the culture. So, yeah. so um, like, yeah, yeah, rabbits and like you know, and so whilst I understood how to break down game, that was, that was you know not too long ago. It was the first time I ever broken down rabbits, you know, and we we'd got twenty or thirty of them, so it was a good process to to do it on the back of the truck. But again, and I brought home heaps of rabbit. We were frying it up and cooking and various things different way but yeah that that's you know that's that it's a funny journey because you know people go oh you start with rabbits no in fact that was that was the latter part of my journey and I, I bought a 22 about 10 years ago or maybe longer simply on the fact that I'd walked into a, a local gun shop here in Brisbane that's no longer there and someone was in front of me selling a, a CZ Lux yeah for next to nothing because he didn't want it. And I was literally behind them going. <laughs> <laughs> so they went, shh, 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 shh. And, I, and I got it and I thought, this is just beautiful. CZ Lux, Bavarian stock and all that stuff. Uh, nominally gave it to my wife. You know, it's easy. You're going to come to the range with me. And she shot it a couple of times and it's been in the safe. And I've got mostly 30 cows, but I've got that 22 just, just for having it. So, you know, that it, it's that a real learning curve and, and learning experience for whoever you are. The most, in fact, the, the single common caliber I've got is 12 gauge because I yeah. love guns. I love shotguns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, honey rabbits. It's I love it every summer. I just, just oh, love yeah. it. I could go honey rabbits in the morning or an evening and fishing in the morning. It's just, mate, I, I do that till last of my days, you know, and hunting rabbits. Uh, particularly in summer when, with a rifle, particularly in summer when the grass is getting longer, it does hone your skills for the bigger game come February, March, April. You know, um, yeah, my kids, when they were learning, Dad, how'd you see that? You know, it's the sun yeah. rabbit's ear and you can see the, the pink ear in the grass. You know, it's just those little things that you learn just by hunting rabbits. So some, it's yeah. very important for me to actually go back every year to hunt rabbits, you know, just to, to hone those skills again, you know. 
I love walking them up with the shotgun. I love yeah, yeah, that, yeah, just, that, yeah. Well, there you go. And that kind of that kind because I, I, I mean, when we could travel, I, I was doing that every couple of years in the UK with birds, which is a, you know, I haven't I've been shot too many rabbits, but I've shot pheasant and I've shot partridge yeah. and I've shot, yeah. and that's that's simply because that's where my hunting's taken me. But again, there's a there's a similarity to it, you know. It's that, that it's not driven, but it's very similar in that way to it. Well, it's funny you talk about the UK, and you know, that's that's bucketless. I remember I was talking to you about going over there and shooting. Yeah, uh, That was that was planned for when I sold the shop, and of course that's that's gone. The money's gone on the house, now. Mm. <laughs> but you know, um, COVID bloody ruined everything. But um, yeah, like I've got myself a little four t- two inch chambered four ten. Um, Little hammer gun, little petite yeah. little thing, and I'm having a great time shooting rabbits with it at the moment. Oh, you know? Sounds it's like awesome great fun. Yeah, great fun. As traditional as it gets, you know, I think yeah. that's what, what I like about it the most, yeah. Um, yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, with COVID uh, knocking our travels down south on the head, mm. I'm turning my deer indicator into a, a, a bunny buster, and she's been great, just pointing, pointing and pointing. So it went from the 410 and now it's the bow. Um, we're getting close enough and sneaky enough now to start knocking them over like that, which has been quite fun because it's just like just out the door, just here, then off you yeah. go up the paddock. Yeah, magic. But I've never been into small game hunting. Once I got the, the deer bug, yeah, it's right. It's like, yeah. oh, you don't go back to, to bunnies. Like, what would you do that for? When I was, uh, it's like that, though, because when I was single, well, not married, I was with my wife, but we weren't married. But I think I was, I don't think I spent a, an Easter at home for four or five years. You know, that we were going out together, and it was always down to Victoria. Mm. Once I got that that deer hunting bug, it was be all and end all. You know, and uh, that's uh, <laughs> a lot of money's gone in those days too. Yes, oh, yes. Um, before before you know, before I had my, my first son, it was the raw, and then the fellow, you know, the rut. You could do them both. You were gone for. 12, 14 days straight, but you could do them both, you know, or you might have a pit stop yeah. way to get some new gear and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, generally, it was a pit stop to get warmer gear because we're now heading south in the Nundal. Yeah. But, yeah, so doing those, doing the the, the, the red and the fallow. Yeah, that's right. We did the same thing. Yeah, we'll shoot up to the uh, to the, the, the Brisbane Valley oh, sort of late March, early yep. April, and then back home to hunt fallow. After school holidays, you know, it's, yeah. it works quite well most years, you know. Well, we, we have a – I take my eldest on a – didn't go this year because of COVID, unfortunately. We still managed to get away, but it stuffed up. The, the a snap lockdown, you know, pushed everything a couple of weeks and he was so he's back at school. But we have a we have a property we visit down in uh, – um, down there in below Tamworth, and we go there every year, and that's his experience in hunting. He's still not handling a rifle, but he's just with me when we're out in the scrub. Yeah. So he's been there three years. So you know, it's um, I think Chloe. Well, I was taking Chloe into state forests when she was probably six, and her first introduction to us for stuff was, you know, I'd let her cook bacon on the on the cooker. You know what I mean? And mm. you know, and it was just there was no turning back and. You know, she'll still she'll still mention that that was Sunny Corner State Forest. She'll still mention that, you know, that that sticks in their mind, and it's it's just a great learning curve for her, you know. Mm. And he'll do the same thing with his kids. Yeah, you know? 
as ours will, you know. Yeah, for us, you know, and people talk about how do you how do you get kids into hunting because you know there's the the, the you know the, the obvious the shock value of, of of hunting an animal. And I said, well, it, for us it was fishing. Um, yeah, same as yeah. you know, the boys by three or four had a had an inkling of understanding that a fish was 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 food, and this was the process that went from from there to there. So. And that then allowed my eldest to be quite comfortable when we were going hunting. You know, he's he's quite interesting. And we were we're in Pilligan one year, and we uh, got Tim got a, a pig, and he cleaned it up. He wanted to take it for meat, and he cleaned it up in camp. And you know, my eldest just was mesmerised by the whole process. He was yeah. just there watching it for like an hour, going, "Okay, yeah." So. He was used to, you know, he was used to the idea of that's where food came from, and I was, I was very happy with that because, I mean, unfortunately, too many people don't know that. You can't always convert people to the hunting lifestyle, but you can convert them to the acceptance of hunting um, by doing stuff like that. Like, yeah, I, I love my sisters-in-law dearly, and my older sister-in-law is a was a, was a school teacher, and you know, there was times there where she wouldn't even look at a venison meal. You know, venison's strong enough, nah, I'll pass, I'll have a sandwich. And, you know, over the years, Naomi would, you know, quite happily now sit down to venison the way we do it, you know. Uh, and that was funny because her husband is one of the best fishers I've ever met. So fishing was always on, but not 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 hunted animals, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's education. And now with the friends of my kids that come in the house now, I'll be at the seat cleaning a rabbit and the girls will hang around saying, oh, what are you doing? You know, I'm doing this. I'm doing, oh, wow, you know. It's um, it's all house presented, I guess, you know. And just, yeah. And look, I, we had some fun when my son was first at school and I, and I was worried that there'd be you know, a bit of blowback. But, in fact, there's far more curiosity about, you know, hunting than than yeah, right. there seems to be far more. Oh, okay. What are you doing? And so people are trying to rationalise what we're doing and and how we're doing it. We had we had an interesting one once where um we had a weapons licensing inspection. You know, and they and they, and they rang up like they do, and I said, yeah, look, I'm home. Come around on this date, and they came around, and uh, the the two coppers came up, and we went through the process, and it was, it was pretty pretty easy, and just as just as they was they were going, my wife had brought home my my my, um, my first from school, and my my youngest was still not at school, so she'd gone pick them up both, and the little fellow was asleep. He was asleep in his mum's arms, and and so my eldest came in, and the two coppers and I were talking, and my and my my eldest kind of shushed the copper, said, "Shh." My little brother's asleep, you know, and everyone had a bit of a giggle about that. So they gave him this kind of little sticker, like, you know, a little square sticker, like, you know, junior detective sticker. Yeah. I said, oh, mate, I'll, I'll put it on a lanyard for you and you can wear it around your neck, you know. So he had this little badge and he and he wanted to take it to school for show and tell. And I said, yeah, no problem. So he took it to show and tell. And then he's like, you know, I got this phone call. And they kind of said, yeah, you know, he kind of went to school and said, oh, I got this. I got this sticker from the police, and they said, "Oh, how'd you get oh. that?" I said, "The police came to Daddy's house to talk to him about all these guns." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. So you know, it's like that. So, we're, but I've actually found that I haven't, you know, 
either either the people who don't like it are too polite to or too scared to say something out of it. Generally, there's been this kind of curiosity about okay, so what, what are you doing? How do how's that how's that process happening? And I, I think that's actually the best way to engage people who might not ever want to hunt, but actually have the you know a genuine curiosity about what you're doing and and wanting to be in wanting to know what you're doing not from a judgment point of view but you know just an interest point of view interesting story the same thing can be said about firearm safety okay so when after i started going out with my wife and she was a not hunting family okay um and i was as a rep then so we take her out to to mudgy go rabbit shooting you know and um very quickly fran started hunting herself rabbits and foxes and so on and so forth so when the kids came along we had this thing that if the kids ever wanted or showed interest in seeing dad's guns then dad would show them the guns you know so you're taking that uh the mystique away from it yes okay and then and then you know you have that never really had any worries with the kids and because they never they never wanted to see the guns unless dad was home dad what are you doing i'm going to clean this yeah it was we took that we diffused that situation by the way we went about it and then it really didn't sort of really at home the, the impact that those little things have until when chloe started at school um and yeah the same thing oh shit, what if something comes up and she mentions this that or the other thing and i don't know what came up at the time but um guns came up and hunting came up and and chloe came home and said oh, just tell me all about it i said oh yeah great what did you say I just told them, Dad, that's where our food comes from, you know? And just and she was only in first class maybe, you know? And for those early, like with your boys, and no doubt your guys, you know, it's just the, the sooner you get them involved mm. and educate them properly, it pays dividends so much down the track. Yeah. You know? um, and, now, and now look at Chloe now, you know, my middle daughter, happy shooting rabbits and termite mounds, and then Nathan, on the other hand, wants to hunt everything in the world. And then you got Chloe on the other hand, who's um, now following, I guess, the advocacy role as well, uh, making a living in the industry, and and ed- she's a firearm safety awareness trainer as well, uh, and she's training people in it. You know, I mean, who would have thought that, you know, just showing the kids a gun to to take the mystique away from a safety point of view would lead to all that? Mm. Yeah. That's well, a very know. good point. Yeah. So, so yeah, she. It's not a bad place to really end, really. The fact you know, you that journey that you know, just that idea of just you know, slowly in, in, immersing and exposing someone and, and where yes. they can take that because you know, you, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to guess that was the future that she would take and that she'd make a, a career yes. out of something that you know was, was just a pastime. And the same, the same, uh, you could take the same path with non hunters, non shooters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your guns spend most of their time with the safe, don't they? Yeah, really. You know, so yeah, it's interesting. Before we let you go, geez, you've covered a lot. Um, but the two things that you're you're really interested in at the moment that's keeping you busy day to day is Shooters Union and your hook and bone business. Was was there another component that you're still working with? Another business that you're still working within? Was your distributor business? My sole business now is as a sales rep or a sales agent, but you know, COVID sort of slowed that right down for the last eight weeks. But yeah, that's that's pretty much the three things now. Yeah, yeah, more on the distribution side though, Craig, to the to the um, 
to the shops and, and the like rather than the general public? Uh, well, yeah, that's right. That's not to the general public so much now. It's just the shops, yeah. retail, and then I think Hook and Barron all going well. I'll develop that where we can sell that um, to the general public perhaps or if it all goes well, maybe pass it on to a wholesaler to sell to, to retailers. Okay, so so for Hook and Bone, if people wanted to have a look at um, the merchandise and, and jump on and buy a hoodie and whatnot, how do they find uh, it? Yeah, the best way is social media at the moment until the website starts. That's Hook and Bone Outdoors on uh, Facebook or Hook and Bone Trading Co on Instagram. Right, no worries. We'll put a link to that in the description of this vid so people can find their way. And um, for the New South Wales listeners that are going to be interested in uh, what you're doing with Shooters Union, signing up, um, making sure that they support the group, how do they find you there? Uh, Shooters Union Facebook page. Uh, sorry, Shooters Union website. And there's a yep. link to the New South Wales website. Okay, excellent. Some, some people there as well. Yeah. Mark? Very cool. Yeah, look, I, I always get philosophical when people ask me about, about hunting and why I hunt, and I, I keep keep reading, you know, um, Sand County Almanac. I keep always yeah. come back to that and about, you know, the, you know, the, it's it's a bastardisation of the quote, but you know, what 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 value is forty freedoms if there's no blank spots on the map type thing, and that's what it is for me. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 the fact that there's still a there's still an activity that I can do. That I am completely responsible for the outcome of that activity. That's right. It's all on me. Success, yeah. failure. There's no other way to palm it off. There's no, oh, you know, blow the whistle or something like that. No, it's it's you. And I and I. That's probably what the the great connection is for me. And so for and I want my my boys to experience that. I want them to. I don't want them to live in a world where all that's removed. Mm. Them to be able to experience that. Yeah, um, and I, I didn't really realise growing up going through hunting, I did not realise the impact that teaching my kids to hunt and fish was going to have on me. Mm. And as I said before, that's my sole focus on why I'm doing what I'm doing. So others can do it, and my grandkids are going to be able to do it. And it, you know, when I'm in the deathbed, I can at least say that we did our best. Yeah, you know, to to keep the whole thing going along. Yeah, I think that's why your your message about unity is so important. I asked this in another in a previous podcast. Um, it's confusing for the average punter out there to, to to figure out who to back, who to listen to, who uh, to support because it, it is. It is. There's, there's too many peak bodies. There's too there's, many. There's too many peak uh, bodies. Um, yeah, too many peak bodies. Some are going good. Some aren't. You don't hear from half of them. Um, Sensationalised um, social media. You don't know whether yeah, it's true, whether it's yeah, not. So. Yeah. There needs to be a push from the the ADA, the WSAA, you know, all of the major ones that are out there to say, you know, this is this is real news. You know, I'm hearing almost every other day at the moment that we're losing um, the freight industry and we're not going to be able to, you know, ship goods yeah. around. And it, I don't know if that's yeah. bullshit or not. I've got no idea. No, 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 it's not bullshit. So um, that's actual fact. But I think. Um, there's light at the end of a tunnel now. Uh, it's common knowledge went out yesterday afternoon. So Star Trek and Australia Post look like stepping up to that. Okay, the right. with that issue, but that's that sort of issue. So there's a couple of others that'll come on board. Uh, that's where CIFA's been invaluable uh, in working towards that. Um, but the other issues with too is the cost of freight coming out of um, or being imported. You know, like container of gun bags. The freight on a container of gum bags last year, to give you an example, is $4,000, okay? 
the same container this year is $13,000. Wow. So the effect of COVID, everybody's um, looking at surcharges all the way down the line to recoup what they've lost, okay? So that we, we're going to see, we might see some shortages still, okay? Because keep in mind, the Yanks are busy filling up their shelves, so we might see some shortages here, but the big thing will be price increases going forward. Yeah, um, yeah I just was going to say something else then too, but... Yeah, so yeah, the freight issue is a big issue, but there's been a lot of people behind the scenes working towards that. Uh, mm, the I think my yeah, the thing the thing for me is who do we, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of noise, a lot of voices, and there's a lot of rubbish. Who do you listen to? And without that unity, and without everyone driving the message in the right direction through the right peak, then you just don't know who to listen to and you don't know who the right people are. And, and that's a real challenging problem. I agree with you. Um, I agree with you. And this is why it's important that there's, that's what we're trying to do with GameCon at the moment is trying to make GameCon that conduit, if you like. Yeah. Because it's already got member clubs as a peak body. But the empathy, the apathy amongst some of those clubs is terrible. Mm. You know? Um, but trying to create dialogue between... GameCon, Shooters Union, which we do, SIFA, uh, which we do, WSWA New South Wales, which we do. But then we need to know, I think the biggest issue is if we're going to, if Shooters Union or GameCon is going to make a push on New South Wales uh, National Park hunting, right, but what's WSWA doing? So we don't want to step on those toes. We need to be all heading in the same direction. And it's that, it's that trans, it's the... It's the um, the swapping of information, I think, is where we sort of fall apart. Mm. We're talking about forming new organisations to take the, the glow away from that organisation A or organisation B. It's mainly to sort of know that we're all going in one direction, you know. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do now with GameCon is just change that around a little bit. Um, and, you know, we're making some headway there. Um, Shooters Union is a member of GameCon, so there's some expertise there as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that uh, the... The way the WSWA and Shoes and Fishers Party are working together now in New South Wales, that that'll see a big change in the tide in 2023. Well, Craig, um, thanks for. Uh, I think we're at two hours and twenty minutes, mate. Yeah, yeah, we had a good so, we had a good half an hour of chit chat at the beginning. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for your time tonight, and uh, thanks for telling us about your stories and especially about your advocacy work. Uh, I know Hook and Bones, you you know. Um, pretty important to you but i think for a lot of us you're getting in there fighting a good fight for um shooting and hunting with shooters union is really the is the big end of town so mate we appreciate your effort in that and good luck with 2023 and having some influence politically in new south wales because as you said i'm a firm believer if you guys have a win there it tends to um you know Flow on, yeah, flow on, gets people's juices flowing. They think, okay, we can do something here. So that's really important. So, mate, good luck with that. And again, good luck uh, with your uh, new business, we'll combine, and um, keep getting those bunnies. <laughs> Thanks, boys. Really appreciate you having me. Hey, eh? it, was, it was good fun. Yeah, it was really insightful. Um, all of these sessions that we do, you learn so much. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. profess to be any form of expert. We're just facilitating a conversation, and it's. Um, it's always really good. So, yeah, appreciate your time. And that's it. Like you said in the very beginning, you know, the idea of helping people out. Well, you, we can talk about hunting and we can talk about state forests, but I think this is just as important. This is going to give, the, as you said, you know, the, the more learned approach. Well, this is going to, what we really want to do is help 
help people get a better understanding of the of the whole spectrum of what hunting and fishing and the outdoors and shooting is all about. So having people like you on and giving your perspective is really, really important. Yeah, all right. Thanks for that, guys. Good on, good on you. Cheers, Craig. Thanks, boys. Thank Take you. care.